Welcome back to the Southwestern Podcast. This is your host, Abby Foster, and co-host, Allison Garrett. Today, we have two guests with us who are both history professors here at Swasu. So we have Dr. Endicott and Dr. Bruce. They are going to talk about the history of Ukraine and discuss the modern times and the points pertinent to what is happening now. So we can't wait to hear what y'all have to say. Hello, I'm uh, Professor Laura Endicott, and I am in the Southwestern Social Sciences Department, and I teach the World War I and World War II classes. And I am Dr. Bruce, also in Social Sciences, and I focus on American foreign policy and um, uh, 1950s and 60s. Okay, I would like to start out our discussion with something that might seem kind of random, uh, but actually pertinent to kind of understanding the mentality of, of Europeans and especially in some way the mentality of uh, Mr. Putin. Uh, in 1917, on January 19th, 1917, during the height of uh, World War One, Arthur Zimmerman, who was the uh, German foreign secretary, sent a telegram, it was intercepted by the British, to basically the German ambassador to Mexico. Now, the United States did not have a good relationship with Mexico, and he urged the German ambassador to Mexico to try to cut a deal with Germany, that Mexico and Germany would make an alliance with one another, and that when Germany and Mexico won the war, uh, because Germany was anticipating that the United States would get into World War I, but that when they won the war, uh, that what they would do for Mexico, and this was the sweetener for Mexico, is that they would return to Mexico all the land that they had lost during the Mexican-American War. So basically Germany said, we're going to give you back Texas and California and Arizona and New Mexico. Now, of course, Mexico said thanks, but no thanks. But this presents the mentality that is still, I think, part of Putin's thinking. To us, it sounds crazy. The idea of Germany going in and giving itself the right to dismantle the United States and basically give the land back to Mexico. And it also brings up the other point of who is the rightful, quote unquote, an owner of the land? Who, who does the land belong to? Land is, is our finite source. It's, you, we're not making any more of it. And so it's it, land and all of its resources are, are what we fight over. So with that in mind, this idea that who does something belong to, can we dismantle a country uh, because we've won something, the conquest theory, and Europe has long been involved with the conquest theory. If I, if I the country, go in and defeat you, then you and all your resources belong to me. Uh, and so I do believe that's this is kind of what Putin is thinking is if I go into Ukraine and I defeat Ukraine, then Ukraine and all its sources belong to me. Uh, and and so this is kind of the mentality uh, that we're dealing with. And this is something that's kind of plagued Europe. Now, most of Europe has gotten past this way of thinking. Uh, but of course, obviously, Putin hasn't. Now, to better understand what's going on here, we've got to go back to the beginning 
And, uh, and as historians, there's nothing we love more than going back to the beginning uh, and trying to, one of the things I try to do with my students is I try to say, okay, we're gonna take this event and they'll be looking at me and saying, okay, I don't know how this event uh, from the 10th century has anything uh, to do with me. And there's nothing more than a challenge historians like, love challenges like that. We, we'd love to prove to you what, what happened in the 10th century has a direct uh, you know, impact on what you're doing. So what I'm gonna do here is I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of this area, uh, going all the way back to uh, the, uh, the ninth century. And uh, don't worry, I'm gonna not spend too much time in the ninth century. Uh, but it's important to understand what's happening because this has a direct effect on the mentality Russia has toward Ukraine. Now, as many of you know, this area was called the Ukraine for the longest time. When we talk about it, we'd, you know, we'd say, oh, the Ukraine, the Ukraine. Nobody ever said Ukraine. So why was it called the Ukraine? Because in general, it was this large territory uh, in kind of Central Europe that many different peoples had control of. So going back to the ninth century, what we have is this area from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, and in it flows down the, the Dnieper River. And it's on the Dnieper River where you find the city of Kiev. It is also in this area that you have the Vikings come into, the Slavic people come into, you have all sorts of people in this kind of north central area of, of Europe. It is an area that is uh, rich in uh, natural resources, and it's also prime agricultural land. This will be kind of the, the breadbaskets of, of Europe, the, the, the flat plains of Ukraine. So a lot of geography plays a role in this. So for the Russians, and is that Kiev was, their point of view is this area was pretty well much established by Slavic people with maybe some Vikings coming in. But Russians see Kiev as the heart and soul of the beginnings of Russian civilization and culture. And this is where Vladimir I, which he's the, the guy that they have a huge statue of, uh, St. Sophia Cathedral and Monastery. Every time we see the city of Kiev being presented on, on TV, uh, what do they show? They show the great monasteria, monasteria, mon monastery and uh, cathedral of St. Sophia, which roots go all the way back to the conversion of Christianity by Vladimir I. Uh, so uh, the Byzantine Empire, which is to the south of here, comes up and says they did a lot of uh, trade and interaction, and they finally said, hey, why don't you guys become Christians? And they said, okay, we will. Uh, and this establishes the Kiev Patriarch. Now you might thinking, okay, what does this have to do with things? It does. Uh, so the Kiev Patriarch is established in the 10th century and it's Orthodox Christians. Uh, Ukraine is about 70% Orthodox Christians. And they're in two major groups. There is the Kiev Patriarch that was established all the way back in the 10th century. And then there's the Moscow Patriarch that was established about three centuries later. And Orthodox Christians are divided between these two groups. So you have people living in Ukraine who are Orthodox 
Christians, but the patriarch of that church is in Moscow, and then you have Orthodox Christians that belong to the Kiev patriarch, and the two groups get along just fine with, with one another. Uh, but again, this has been one of the pretenses that Putin has used, is that he's, and this is something Russia loved to do, is use the Orthodox, uh, use Orthodox Christianity to basically invade countries over the years. And Putin, of course, who probably doesn't have religious bone in his body, is using this, you know, we're going to go in and protect the people who belong to the Moscow pa uh, patriarchy. And they're probably like, they're like, what? You know, we didn't ask for your help or, or uh, assistance. But again, it's one of the things in this really complex entanglement of, of cultures and peoples and religion that he's using this very old excuse that we've got to come in and protect the people that belong to the Moscow patriarch of Orthodox Christianity. Now, like I said, the Russians regard this whole Kiev, what they call Kiev, the Russian Kiev or Kiev Rus as it's called today, as as the beginning of Russian civilization and culture. Now, it's pretty well much destroyed when the Mongols come in. And the, when the Mongols come in uh, in the uh, 1200s and, and pretty much burn Kiev to the ground, uh, you have a shift to Moscow. Uh, and, uh, and that is going to be further east. And what's going to happen is that this area over time, Ukraine is going to be divided up among all sorts of different countries. A huge part of it is, for a while, going to belong to an independent Russian state, and then it's going to belong to the Duchy of Lithuania, then it's going to belong to Poland, and then finally, at the kind of the 1600s, uh, most of Ukraine is going to get, end up back under the Russian Empire and their control. And the Russian point of view is that Ukraine, this area, the Ukraine, rightfully belongs to them because this is where Russian civilization began, and this rightfully belongs to us. However, by this time, the Ukrainian people have, in a sense, their, their, their own culture, uh, their, like I said, the Kiev patriarch of, of their church, uh, and their own language, all of that, and they see themselves as kind of an independent entity within the Russian Empire. Now, what's going to happen is that we get the Napoleonic Wars, and uh, the settlement of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815 is going to lead to something called the Congress of Vienna. And the Congress of Vienna is going to take uh, Ukraine, uh, the heir of Ukraine, and it's going to split it between Part of it's going to go to Poland, part of it is going to the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, and the other part is, is going to go to Russia. There is, there is no, Ukraine is a geographical area at this point. It's a, it's a territory. It's, it's not and has not been looked on ever as its own separate nation at this point. But just because it's not been looked on as its own separate nation, doesn't mean that they are not starting to identify with a national identity. When we get into the 1800s, 
nationalism, the concept of nationalism is, and what I mean by this is the more what we call the romantic attitude toward nationalism and not the nationalism of the 1920s that helps lead to two world, uh, excuse me, of the, of the 20th century that leads to uh, two world wars. But the idea that nationalism, that you can create a nation based on commonalities uh, and shared language, shared religion, shared culture. And so it's something that the Ukrainians are starting to dream about and it's something they are hoping for, but they've been split in three different ways. And then, and what's going to happen is during World War One, they're going to find themselves fighting against each other because the Austrian-Hungarian Empire and Germany are basically the, the central powers. And then you've got Russia, uh, France, and Great Britain aligned with uh, each other in the Triple Entente. And pretty well much that's how World War One comes down. It's Germany versus France, uh, Great Britain, and Russia, and their junior partner is the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. And the Austrian-Hungarian Empire and Russia have been fighting wars with each other for a very long time. And so the part of Ukraine that's, that Austria has, the Austrian-Hungarian uh, uh, Empire has, courtesy of the Congress of Vienna in 1815, uh, is Galatia. And Ukraine is the second largest country in Europe after Russia. And so Ukraine is going to supply for Russia millions of soldiers. And the Austrian-Hungarian Empire is going to get about 250,000 soldiers out of Ukraine, out of this Galatia area. So they find themselves fighting against one another. And this causes great hardship uh, because, again, like I said, you've got this growing identity that has started this wish to have its own country, its you know, a place to call home. And they find themselves uh, essentially fighting you know, against one another. And now what's going to happen that's going to kind of make it even more difficult for the Ukrainians is the instability of Russia during World War I. Russia tried to fight World War I essentially on horseback and horse-drawn cannon. And by the time we get to early 1917, Tsar Nicholas II has taken over the Russian army, and you have mass desertions. It's estimated there's only one rifle for every 20 Russian soldiers. I mean, they, they simply cannot fight this. So starting in March, depending on which calendar you're on, the Julian calendar, the Gregorian calendar, will go with March, you have the first Russian Revolution. And the Tsar is toppled from power. The Tsar agrees to abdicate. And a provisional government is established under Alexander Kerensky. And he says, like, Russia has to honor its commitments. Uh, we can't leave this war. We have said we will fight and for with France and Great Britain. And, of course, France is freaking out because, well, if the Russians leave the war, then that means the Germans can take all those men fighting the Russians and put them on the Western Front against France and Great Britain. And so Kerensky says, let's stay in. But this is unpopular. And riding that wave of unpopularity of Russia staying in World War I uh, are going to be the Bolsheviks who've embraced, you know, Marxist ideology, although it'll be their own particular brand of it. And th you then are going to have 
a second revolution in late 1917, either called the October or November Revolution, depending on which calendar you're on. Russia was still on the old uh, Julian calendar, and about this point, uh, there are about 11 days, the two calendars are about 11 days off. The rest of the world is on the Gregorian calendar, uh, but so they're about 11 days off uh, from uh, uh, from the calendar, the Gregorian calendar, everybody else uh, is on. And so taking advantage of this discontent of Russia staying in the war, Vladimir Lenin is going to uh, seize power. He promises new elections, and of course when the Bolsheviks get the minority in the elections, he basically just simply abandons and dissolves the new national assembly. And he realizes, starting in early 1918, that they are going to have to cut a deal with Germany, that they're just going to pull out of the war, and France and Great Britain are just going to have to deal with it. Uh, the Americans say they're coming, so they're, they can just deal with it now. So you get the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, and the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk is going to sign 25% of Russia, including the part of Ukraine that Russia had, and give it to Germany. And Germany's pretty excited about that, because Ukraine has, like I said, it has all these natural resources, it's great agricultural land, and Germany says, yeah, we'll take it. But what happens, of course, is Germany loses the war. And when Germany loses the war, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk is null and void, and therefore, briefly, Ukraine, which was now going to go, to, or a chunk of Ukraine, which was going to go to Germany, now looks like it's gone back to Russia. But it is at this point that Russia kind of falls apart and you have several, a couple civil wars in where essentially Ukraine is caught in the middle. And, and, and the Ukrainians are like, okay, they see this as an ideal opportunity to create their own country. Russia's falling apart, they're fighting, and but a lot of that fighting will end up in Ukraine, but you will have two separate Ukrainian republics declared. Uh, the one that had been the, in the old Austrian-Hungarian Empire and the one that had belonged to the Russian Empire. Here's the problem. Everything's a mess, nothing's been settled, and they're not getting any international support for this. Uh, one of the Wilson's 14 points when he comes over to Paris at the when uh, World War One ends in November of 1918, and they start the long six-month negotiations to end World War One. One of President Woodrow Wilson's points was, of course, self-determination. That all these ethnic groups that have been under these empires, whether the German Empire or the Russian Empire or the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, they all get a right to start their own country. So the Ukrainians are like, yay, we're finally gonna get recognized. We're, you know, and, and the two independent Ukrainian self-declared republics have said, well, we better work together. So they come together and they think that they are going to finally be recognized because Woodrow Wilson is all about self-determination and essentially we're gonna get this opportunity uh, to become our own country. Even though currently at this point, there's still a lot of fighting taking place because you have, it's a long story for Russia, but they have a civil war going on between the Red Army, the White Army, the Poles, the Ukrainians, they're all involved and a huge chunk of the fighting is taking place in Ukraine. But the Ukrainians are hoping 
with the whole Woodrow Wilson and self-determination that essentially they might get their own country out of this. Well, they're going to be really sorely disappointed because the settlements of the several, the five different peace treaties don't recognize an independent Ukraine. Instead, Central and Eastern Ukraine are going to go back to Russia, and some parts of Ukraine are going to go to Poland, some are going to go to the new, uh, newly established Czechoslovakia, and some of it's going to go to Romania. Because nobody is, there's no history of Ukraine being an independent country, and at this point, nobody, you know, the powers that be at the the negotiations, the peace negotiations in Paris saw any reason to give the Ukrainians their own country, despite the fact that was one of Wilson's, you know, 14 points. Because a lot of people think, well, they've never been a country, so why make them a country? And so, as you can imagine, they're sorely disappointed. And like I said, a chunk of Ukraine goes back to Russia. Now, for the Russians and their attitude, this the Ukraine belongs rightfully to them because they see this area is where their story began and that it belongs to them. Now, initially, the idea was is that the Ukrainians would be allowed to be Ukrainian. Their language, their culture, everything would be left alone. But Joe Stalin comes to power. And Joseph, uh, Joseph Stalin is one of the most unpleasant human beings that ever lived, probably responsible for the deaths of about 20 million of his own people, and part of it's going to be here. He is going to begin a campaign of uh, Russification, that meaning that, no, we're not going to accept you guys and your language and your culture. We're going to turn you into little Russians. At least that was the term. Little Russia is a term that's used for people in U Ukraine, Belarus, etc. And, uh, and so you're going to start speaking Russian. You're going to do all of this because you've always been part of us. This is where our history begins, and you're not going to be allowed to have an independent identity. Uh, also, Stalin's five-year programs and his collectivization of agriculture is going to cause a tremendous amount of pain for this area. It is estimated that through famine and other results of his policies is that about 8 million people are going to die and the bulk of them will be in Ukraine. What you're going to have is, is famine breakout because these new agriculture programs as envisioned by Joseph Stalin uh, didn't keep up but the heart of these agricultural programs were, were aimed at Ukraine because that is Ukraine is where they're growing their food and as a result you get several million people in Ukraine die of uh, starvation in in the 1930s thanks to Stalin's programs and so you get the emergence of the Ukraine insurgent army and the Ukraine insurgent army is going to be kind of this army that's going to fight both the Soviets and the Germans because the next big thing that is going to happen of course is World War II Thank you for listening to our first episode with Dr. Endicott and Dr. Bruce, breaking down the history of Russia and Ukraine. Stay tuned for episode two and have a great day.